You're listening to the Man Overseas Podcast, a show that explores methods and ideas to help you live a bigger life. You will hear interesting stories of how people live, how they save and invest their money, and why having time wealth is better than being a billionaire. If you are entertained, educated, or elevated, be sure to hit the subscribe button. We're just getting started. Now here is your host, Brad D'Antonio. Hi, friends, and welcome. I'm glad you could join me. My guest today is Mike Kilso. He has been working in the mortgage industry since 2005. He says that he enjoys helping families to realize their dreams of homeownership, and I think that's great. Mike is the first mortgage professional I've had on the podcast, which is a little surprising. He's also a follower of Christ. He's had four kids and one wife, Christina. He makes his home in Phoenix, Arizona, and has pretty much spent his entire life there, except for the three years where he and I played baseball together at Nichols State University. So he's a former teammate. I was excited to have this chat. We start with a favorite story of ours from our NCAA experience, and then I ask about a Facebook video that he posted about buying and investing in real estate. So I enjoy a good disagreement, and there was something in the video that I took exception to. So I challenged him on some of the finer points of that video and figured, you know, I could have argued with him on Facebook about it, but I thought, you know, this is a learning experience, not only for us, but listeners. I think they'll learn something. So we also discussed relationships. I take it back to my early 20s and late teens, an age when I was very susceptible to the influence of men and people I looked up to and wanted to be like. So just as an example, I mentioned an ex-girlfriend's dad and how important it was for me to earn his respect. And along those lines, we talk about having big families and Mike's decision to have four kids. We also talk about Kobe Bryant's death and being inspired by his drive to succeed. And of course, we talk about money and Mike shares he and his wife's love language and we get into becoming a super dad. So we cover a lot. That's not all we talk about. But that'll give you a little glimpse. So here we go. Let me bring on Mike Kelso. Hey, Mike. Welcome to the podcast, buddy. Hey, Brad. Thanks for having me, man. I'm super excited. I've been looking forward to this for the past, well, since we started talking about, I guess, a week, two weeks now, I guess. Or no, it's been months since you made a comment on my Facebook post. So I'm, I'm super excited. And it's been so long since we talked to you that it's almost been, what, darn near 20 years now, huh? Dude, time is flying. Yes, we've been out of school just about as long as... Before school, we were in, we were alive for about 19 years, and then we've been alive for 19 years since school. It's just nuts. I know, and, then, and it makes me feel so much younger than I probably really am. Do you have really. a favorite memory from our playing days? Absolutely. I have a few. Number one, <laughs> the favorite one of you, I'm going to start with, was when you used to do the uh, Ray Lewis <laughs> dance. I sure That was usually coaxed after a few adult beverages i'm pretty sure i remember but it was always a joy to see that you know i saw him do that i think it was before a super bowl or something and i remember thinking that's not a difficult dance to do i'll bet you my body can do that and so sure enough i think we were playing troy state or somebody like that and i went outside the dugout and did a little stretching and and i just got after it and and some of you guys were impressed so it kind of became a thing but (laughs) yeah i can do the ray lewis Lewis dance it's Burnt in my memory banks, that's for sure. <laughs> cool. You said you have a few of them. What else do you remember? Yeah, I, I think it was Troy again. I, I remember hitting a home run there, and it was a changeup that a guy hung inside, and I mm. turned on it, and I was just changing a batting stance, so it felt so great to get some success 
with that batting stance, it was one of the, <laughs> the greatest things. So that, those little things, right? It I think is. It was one of the three home runs I hit there. Now, Brad, what was your favorite memory at Nichols? My first experience playing Division One baseball, we were playing at Ole Miss, and they had an area beyond the outfield fence where their fans would they would pull up in their trucks and literally tailgate. They would sit on their tailgate, and they would heckle the outfielders the whole game. And I had come from a JUCO program where we had more people on the field than we had in the stands. So this was a, a big deal for me. I, I loved the fact that there were people there that cared enough to, to heckle me throughout the game. And so I remember playing right field the first game of the series and then moved to a different outfield position or maybe didn't play. I don't remember exactly. Uh, but Jason Wilkerson, who was probably like six foot, 275, apologies, Jason, I'm sure he'll listen to this. Um, I don't know exactly what size he was, but he was a big dude. And so they just started giving him shit the whole game about being fat. Like, where's Brad? What'd you do? Eat him? <laughs> and that thick Oxford, Mississippi <laughs> accent. And so I just thought that was awesome. Um, I'm like, I don't know if you remember our other outfielder, Kevin Larpenter. He was the type that would give shit back to the hecklers. So the whole game, you could hear him just chirping back like, hey, you fucking lizard. Like, what do you care? You're not playing, you lizard. And he's just talking back the whole time. So that was my first experience playing Division One baseball, and I just I couldn't get enough of it. I wish that every game was like that. Absolutely. I, I would be in big trouble, Brad, if I didn't mention my best memory, of course, at Nichols. I did meet my lovely wife. We were eventually were married and now have four kids. So. Wow, you and Christina have four kids now, huh? Yes. And she ran track at Nichols State, correct? Track and cross country, yeah. So her sport was our punishment. <laughs> yes, yes, conditioning practice. How about that? A practice where you have to show up knowing that you're just going to run your ass off. Yeah, Beautiful, that, right? that, I always give her shit for that. I'm like, you realize you got to go to school and do what we got in trouble to have to do. Yeah. <laughs> At least in the NCAA, they have restrictions on how much you can practice. JUCO has a terrible reputation of conditioning nonstop. Like, I remember hearing a story about San Jacinto, San Jack, which is in Houston. They were a perennial powerhouse for a long time. And I heard a story about their coach driving home from a game and making them get out of the bus and jogging around the bus as the bus was moving down the street. <laughs> yeah. Wow. So, yeah, I've heard some crazy uh, conditioning JUCO stories. but. It's a little less once you get to the university level. Yeah, true story. Yes. You know, another memory that pops into my head, speaking of playing at big schools, when we would play against small schools, especially like the SWAC schools, remember those are the predominantly black schools like Prairie View A&M and Texas Southern. There would be a group of girls at one of the games that would sit behind the plate and they took a liking to me. And these games don't attract a lot of fans. And so when it's really quiet, you, it's like they're whispering in your ear when you're trying to hit. And so I can remember them saying, look at the booty on number three. <laughs> and I was like, yeah, girl, he's fine. And I think they knew it was getting to me because I would step out of the box and just kind of chuckle with the, the catcher and the umpire. But they would do it every time I came up to bat. And so it became a running joke. But man, yeah, so many good memories. Anything else that you can remember that really stands out? My parents ended up coming unexpectedly to my very last game. And I think it was actually organized by my wife at the time. She was my girlfriend. It was at San Marcos. No. Yeah, San Marcos. It was, it was before it was Texas State. So it was southwestern Louisiana or southwestern Texas State or something like that. And 
they showed up unbeknownst to me. And I was like, wow, that's really cool. And the last game that I'm going to play in college, my parents showed up. She proved herself worthy of marriage material there. Man, I kept her. That's yeah, awesome. And you had come from Arizona, right? Yes. There's a, a strong line of junior college baseball that goes to Louisiana. It was it was odd because I ended up playing against players in Louisiana that I played against in Arizona because there was a lot of people that would recruit from the junior colleges out in Arizona because of the weather, because we play year-round. So ended up with a lot of players out there. I actually helped recruit some of the players to come to Nichols from junior college after I was done because I stayed an extra year to finish up school. Frequently on this podcast, we talk about baseball before anything else, but it's America's pastime, right? So I, th- I think it's wonderful that we talk baseball. But I do want to switch to you're a mortgage professional, correct? Yes, sir. Excellent. And you posted a Facebook video. It was something to do with market conditions. And I took exception to the video because I thought that it could have been misleading, or at least I thought it was in need of further explanation. So here's what you said. I'll quote you. You said, home prices are projected to appreciate 4.2% over the next year and 12.7% over the next five years. So I have a few thoughts. As an investor, which I'm, an, I'm a real estate investor, even if I were buying a primary residence, let's say I wasn't an investor, those projections wouldn't carry much weight with me. Because one, I don't know who's making the projections. Two, those percentages are very specific, and which probably, I think when somebody gives really specific numbers like that, statistics or percentages, it tends to lend them more credibility. How accurate have their projections been in the past would be my next question. So, and even if they were to accurately predict appreciation rates for the next one year or five years, once you've factored in inflation, the appreciation rates aren't very good, right? Because 4, 4% appreciation, if you have 2 to 3% inflation, that's not saying much. And then over a five-year period, you take 12.7%, you divide it by five years, and then you're only looking at about 2.5% appreciation. So leave it to me to comment on your Facebook video, to like throw a big bomb on your parade, like, dude, hey, I don't agree with this. I don't know. You know? So anyway, I was like, hey, let's have a podcast and discuss it. So what, what are your thoughts on my thoughts? I love it. Number one, I want to have a discussion about it. So it was the idea was to make a post to start a conversation. And for me, it was more about, hey, these are some things that I, I, I want to talk about. If you're looking to go ahead and buy, here's some, the source was, it's MBS Highway. Barry Habib is the, he calls himself an entrepreneur, a real estate entrepreneur. And he runs a service that deals with watching mortgage-backed mortgage securities. And also within that, he gives predictions on the housing market. And he talks about the economy as a whole and what, what all those markets are doing. So I, you know what I probably should have done, Brad, that you, you mentioned it. I probably should have sourced or, or cited. This is from MBS highway from Barry Habib. That would probably been a good place to go. Well, I have a lot of thoughts there too. So mortgage backed securities, Probably sounds like a dirty word to some people because how long have you been in mortgages? Been 2005. Since? Okay, so you were in mortgaging when the recession hit. 
And you know that mortgage-backed securities had quite a bit to do with that. So that's sort of something that you probably have to explain too. But I think we all post content and hope for engagement. So hopefully it's helpful that I would ask questions like this. What do you think about the appreciation rates as it pertains to not being much more than inflation? I mean, you're basically breaking even, and here you are saying it's a great idea to buy a home because you're basically going to keep pace with inflation. Yeah, so the idea is it, the target is, hey, are you renting right now? Because the, the post was directed towards consumers who are currently renting and they could afford to buy a home that would allow them to have their home appreciate, which will let them increase their net worth and, as opposed to renting and not gaining anything. Yeah, sounds so like I, I wasn't very clear about that. <laughs> <laughs> so I can remember back in 2007, I had a buddy who was working for his dad, making buku money, and he was looking for places to invest around the country. And he chose the Phoenix area or the Scottsdale area. Is that the same thing, by the way, Phoenix Scottsdale? Yeah, I think what they do is they call it the Phoenix Scottsdale market, as a because everybody knows that Scottsdale is where the waste management open is happening right now, where you have a lot of different events and that's kind of the, the higher scale or higher end, higher income area mm -hmm. of Phoenix. We can identify that there. Is that where you live? No. Uh, where do you live? I live in Ahwatukee. So it's further South. It's Ahwatukee is not really a city. It's a more of a, a community within mm -hmm. Phoenix. It's south of South Mountain, butts all the way up against to where there's no more Phoenix, and it goes to Indian Reservation. So back to my buddy. He was looking, he was scouring the country, trying to find places to invest his money. He wanted to pay cash for some houses, and so he was basing his purchases on historical trends. And at that time, places like Vegas and Scottsdale were appreciating like I don't remember the exact numbers but something like 30 or 40 percent a year I mean it was just nuts mm -hmm. so rather than go for properties in Houston which is what I was doing and what I was trying to convince him to do he started buying in these markets and and he didn't go bankrupt but he lost a whole lot of money because you can't predict what the market is going to do you can take some educated guesses but when I saw specific projections of 12.7%, I've kind of always wanted to talk to somebody and dig into, well, how do they come to those projections? I mean, we can't, corporations don't project out beyond three years because they know that economic predictions beyond three years is, is probably BS because there's so much technological advancement that could happen between now and then or war or climate change, whatever it is that you're concerned about happening, whatever catastrophe could possibly happen. Anyway, so I was just curious and I wanted to dig into it and see if if you, would you make a decision to purchase a property based on a projection of five-year appreciation rates in a particular market? That is a very good question uh, i'll tell you that we are in the process of building a home to buy that will be finished in the summer uh, i don't think i looked at it and said hey based upon what's going on in the market we're going to go ahead and buy now because in five years it's going to be worth 12.4 percent more 
Yeah. That's not why we bought. We're we're buying because our family grew and we need a bigger house. Yeah. But with that being said, to go back to your point as far as projections and how you can make those, I can give a little bit of information on where those projections came from, from Barry Habib's side. And what he's citing is the overall economic market right now is showing that we're we're poised for a pullback in the stock market, which will traditionally have money move from the stock market to the bond market. That will help drive interest rates down to help people with buying power. In addition to that, the inventory that's available for people that are looking to buy in the Phoenix market, Phoenix Scottsdale market, is less than one month. And and obviously with you being in the investment world and in real estate investment, I know you carry, you have a, a, a real estate license as well, right, Brad? Yes. So you look at the market as far as the inventory available based upon if all the homes sold today or how many months would that of supply would be available. So there's less than a month of supply here. And the builders that are building aren't keeping up with that in Phoenix. So they're saying that the demand for housing will help to go ahead and keep that trajectory of inflation, not inflation, the trajectory of increasing values over the next year and five years. That's what the projections are are coming from. It starts with the assumption that there'll be a pullback in the stock market. Is that what you said? Yeah. So in, and I pulled some information on it. I, I it's a, a graph of that shows in recessionary periods, with the except of 2006, 2007, 2008, home values typically rise in that in those in those atmospheres. So all the projections that I'm hearing from Barry Habib's team is that the market is is poised for a pullback, the stock market that is, mm-hmm. because of the fact we've been riding this bull market for so long. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think though if you googled pullback in stock market 2012 that you'd you'd find no shortage of predictions that we were due for a pullback in 2012 and even if you had in May of 2017 if you had said I'm going to take all of my money out of the market because there's going to be a recession coming in 2 years or less. I can remember debating a buddy of mine at dinner one night who was trying to convince me that there was going to be a a major recession coming in the next two years. He's also vehemently anti-Trump, which probably plays a role in his thinking there. But since May 2017, the S&P 500 is up over 50%. So these things are hard to predict. And I just don't like to see people make specific predictions like that because I think that they're typically clueless and trying to sell something. Hey, everybody's entitled to their opinion. I, like I said, when I talk to you about getting, coming on this, I want to have a conversation about it. I want to hear other sides of things. And I want to go ahead and, and, and make sure that people are educated. And don't take my word for it. Don't, I mean, I'm just here trying to regurgitate some of the things I've heard. Here's, since you brought up politics, though, I saw something recently. If, if you ever heard of the Cromford Report? Mm-mm, no. It's, it may be specific to Arizona, but they're talking about when in an election year, which we have to talk about because it's 2020, when there is an incumbent Republican who is reelected, 
in history, the stock market traditionally drops some double digit number. And I shouldn't get specific because I don't remember exactly what the number is. Conversely, if a Democratic president is elected on their first term, traditionally, there's a double digit drop in the stock market as far as percentage. So again, I don't have a crystal ball. There's no magic eight ball, but those are what the history, what history shows. So with, to your point, I don't know if it's going to happen. This market could ride forever. I would love to see it because then my money's going to be worth more in in the future. But with those indicators, it seems to indicate that a recession would be happening over the next year or so. The stat that you just gave me about an incumbent being a Republican, et cetera, if you had to base a decision on whether to invest for the next few years, let's say you could have, you could choose 75 variables. Would that grab no, your top 75? Yeah. No, again, I, I, I don't look at it that way. I'm just, I, I, when you're talking about what, how do you make those predictions? I, the predictions that I'm hearing, those are some of the factors that they're talking about. And again, that could mean, there's an exception to every rule. There's, it doesn't happen every time. There's probably averages. So an incumbent Republican, on average, it's a double-digit loss. Well, it could have been somebody gained eight and somebody lost 20, and it was just a funny time, right? So it doesn't always – it's not always a blanket statement. And I've also talked to certified financial planners in the past that if you miss the five best days in the market out of the entire year, you could miss – you know, whatever, 75% of the gains are, again, I'm not, I don't have exact numbers, but a lot of times if your money's out of the market on only as little as five days, you could be losing on, on a big amount of gains. So timing the market, nobody's ever got it right hundred percent of the time. And it's never going to happen that way. That is correct. I've seen a stat where that says something like if within a 10 year period, if you're out of the market for 10 days, your return looks closer to 2% rather than 10%. And that's just nuts. So yeah, you cannot time the market. And anybody who tries is a fool. And anybody who's trying to advise you on timing the market is a charlatan who is probably after your money. So I would avoid those folks. Another concern I had regarding your video. <laughs> Wait is, a minute. When do I get to ask you questions? I'm just kidding. <laughs> so you said that the number one reason that some people are still renting is because they think they need 20% down but that you can actually purchase a house with 5% down or even 3% down. Isn't this part of what got us into trouble last time around pre-recession? Good question. And, and a lot of people ask that question. I would say the reason why we got into that problem with recession was not because of 3% and 5% down. It was because the lending programs allowed people to buy homes without having to verify the way they made money or the correct way that how much money they made. I'll give you an example that I hear and I use a lot of times is a target cashier says, I want to do a stated income program and I make $130,000 a year. That doesn't happen anymore. It just doesn't. There are programs that are loosening up. And, and I think that, when people hear that, they get scared as well. They go, oh, no, not again, because it's so fresh in people's minds. But there are programs for people who are self-employed that allow them to verify that they make money other than tax returns for two years because 
as you and I both know, business owners would like to go ahead and show as little money as possible to pay taxes on. That makes it harder to qualify for a home loan because then you want to show the bank that you make as much money as possible as well. So there's alternative ways to show that you're making money as a business, but we're not saying, hey, you tell us how much you make and we'll write a loan based upon how much money you say you make and we'll give you a loan based upon that. That doesn't happen anymore. Which is a shame. <laughs> I was one of those phony baloney buyers in 2003, I think it was. And I remember them asking me, you were too? Oh, yeah. I did the same thing. <laughs> yeah, so we wouldn't have gotten our start without one of those loans. Yeah, they call them liar loans. You tell them what you make, and then they tell you to sign where the line is dotted. The crash of the housing market was, again, one of 75 variables. Sure. Probably more like 750,000 variables. With regard to liar loans, after the fact, it was easy to blame banks for credit default swaps and mortgage-backed securities and all the mess that was going on there. Part of that is because politicians would not do themselves any favors by blaming the consumer, <laughs> right? If you can pit 99% of people against 1% of people, you're much more likely to, to get voted into office than doing it the other way around. But certainly both parties were at fault, both the, both the buyer who was willing to take on a loan without being able to afford it, and the perhaps predatory lender who was willing to lend them money, knowing that the prospects of them paying it back were not very good. But it's interesting because, yes, we both did benefit from that. I didn't necessarily benefit from it. Oh, really? <laughs> I know that you've, you've built a real estate empire with it. I went ahead and, and bought a home in a market that probably wasn't the best on a stated income, and then ended up having to short sell it down the road at pennies on the dollar. Are you serious? Promise. Oh my goodness. So I was fortunate enough to where I was making good income to where I moved out of that area, rented the home for a while. And then at some point in my life, number one, the rents were going down, couldn't cover the, the mortgage anymore, had another baby. I was at a point where I said, you know what? It, it doesn't make any sense because I bought the home for like 235000 and had to short sell it like ninety. Three thousand, Mike, one hundred and forty thousand dollars less. What happens after you do that? Well, the way the laws were written was if you'd owned the home as a primary residence three out of the last five years, it was completely forgiven. Did you have to prove that it was a stated income loan that you had gotten? It wasn't. It wasn't anything that had us talk about a stated income. It wasn't. I was making the payments and I was still affording the payments. When it default, I never went behind on my payments. I still was making all the payments. I was on time, but it was, it was a situation where I said, I, I don't, the home that I bought is still probably now maybe worth around 200,000 and it just never has come back. And it was in a market where it was outside the outskirts of Phoenix. It probably sounds a little bit like what your friend had done. I don't know if it's exactly the same, but, probably bought in a spot where values were supposed to be going up. There were so many houses that were available. And I think homeownership was at a record number at that time as well. And they were wanting people to buy homes to, to, to change demographics and change people's lifestyle. So 
Yeah, same same story, different song. Well, in defense of buyers, it is true that Holmes historically had always appreciated, as far as we knew. And so if you got a 3% down loan, people could be pretty confident. Let's say you bought a house for 200000 If you looked at the trends over the last 10, 20, 30 years, you were going to get more money if you had to sell it in five years. And so they were willing to take that risk because if values have always gone up, why would you not buy something? It's better than throwing your money away on rent. And you'll probably get some appreciation that enables you to pay the closing costs, realtor fees and all of that. And you can get out of the house and maybe even move up in five years. Also, our government was encouraging the changing of demographics like you talked about. It was it was the American dream to uh, encourage lender, lenders to lend money to people who couldn't necessarily afford it. And so I remember I was in real estate full time at the time and I had a buyer who was a manager of an ice cream shop who, who netted $2,000 a month. His monthly mortgage payment was going to be $1,200. He had a $400 truck payment. He had gas to pay for and insurance and food. And there was no way that this guy was going to be able to afford this payment. And I couldn't talk him out of it because he was buying in an area that has, had historically appreciated. And he wanted to, to get, he wanted to build equity. And so he was willing to do it. And what happens a lot of times is you can put forth your best effort to talk people out of, of what you think is in their best interest or not in their best interest. People are going to do what they want. So it wasn't all unscrupulous lenders and agents out there who were trying to sell people homes. Um, I, I would look out for people's best interests. If I didn't think it was a good idea, I always thought that I would do better in my career by talking someone out of buying a home, knowing that that would build the kind of trust that when they they could afford a home, that they would come back to me and in the interim refer me all of their friends and family. And that plan worked well for me for a long time. I, I would I would echo that sentiment. I, honestly, I'm not trying to just piggyback off it, but I am. Uh, you know, if if you're trying to get a deal, then you do what you just said, right? Okay, man, I'll help you find this house. If you're trying to build a relationship. Then you go ahead and take and have that take the time and have that conversation and say, hey, look, how are you going to eat? What are you going to What are you going to do if if your air conditioner breaks or you need to fix something with the water water heater or you know anything? You're not you have zero wiggle room, and that's just. And, and I still have those conversations to this day, and, and I've been in mortgage long enough to see ups downs all arounds. I never wrote those loans. I'm I'm, I'm sure you probably can. Everybody that's a lender now these days, we're going to say, I never wrote those loans. I want, I never, never did that. Right. I, I wasn't in a spot where I could, I was working for a company. We weren't, we didn't write those loans. So mm-hmm. um, it's just, it, it's, it's unfortunate, but I'm glad to hear that there's some good guys out there. Did you, did, have you invested in real estate since the recession? I So I had a home that I owned in, that I ended up selling about four years ago and rented I've been renting since then so currently this is like I, I try to tell people this and, and I'm trying to be funny here so hopefully that people get the joke you know you got the landscaper whose yard that looks a mess you got the mortgage guy that doesn't have a mortgage because he rents <laughs> so I'm taking my own advice 
in going and buying, but it's not always just because I want to see the appreciation of 12%. It's, it's time to go ahead and grow some roots here. So there are, there are no marks on your credit report or anything from the house that was forgiven? Oh, there is. No, there is definitely. So a short sale does have an impact on your credit. Fortunately, it's, I've done everything else right since then. And I've owned a home since then. And there are still certain loan programs that I can't do because I'm not seven years past that event. Mm. So some, some companies and some lending guidelines need seven years. Others are four and others are two. It, there's a couple different areas that would be where that would vary. So when this was quote unquote forgiven, what happens? So when you sell the home, you go through the process, you have to get an approval from the lender to agree to take less money than what's owed. And what profit that? For you on your end. With the lender themselves or me to sell? You to sell. So at that point, we were at a, I think we had our second child. We were paying more than what we were receiving in rent. So we were negative cash flow on the rental. And the value that we'd seen, and the value that we saw was so low that we felt like it wasn't going to come back in time. So we decided to go ahead and sell. And the bank was totally cool with that? They looked at it and said, all right, based upon this information, we will accept that. And it wasn't, I know that there was a lot of people that did things in that time frame, uh, strategic defaults or going behind on payments to allow them to go ahead and get out of things or getting modifications. We, we didn't do any of that, but we decided that it was no longer in our best interest to keep that home when we were negative cash flowing on the rental. Man, that's interesting. And they were willing to take a huge six-figure loss on it. Yep. That is so interesting. And, and what they were doing is trying to basically, I think, rebuild. There was, I had neighbors on both sides all up and down the street where the homes were just abandoned. And garage doors ripped off, landscaping terrible, if, and every other house was being rented. And the neighborhood was just kind of, uh, it was almost like a loss. So they said, all right, they almost wanted to hit the reset button and say, okay, we'll start back at 100000 and see if we can go ahead and make it the starter home for somebody and move on. So mm-hmm. it was, that was the way it seemed like to me. So tell me about the journey of getting your finances back in order. Well, my finances really weren't out of order. So we bought a home. We, I was making good money. Christina was a doctor, still making good money. She still is a doctor. I shouldn't say she was a doctor. We were making good money and, and we actually had family members living with us. We'd added children to our family and our finances were in good shape we just did not want to sustain or continue to have that loss that negative income monthly so um, it was probably one of the best times for us financially until now so it was actually a really good spot for us are you a dave ramsey guy yes and no uh, I did facilitate a class in the past. I love the idea of people getting their finances in order because with anything, if you don't work on it, 
it's it, it, it it's like weeds will grow if you don't water if, if you don't do anything right same thing with bad habits they will grow if you don't do anything so you have to work at anything you want to be good at whether it's finances relationships basketball tennis anything so if you're not working at it then you're you're doomed to the weeds if you will the bad habits indeed so you say you facilitated a class does that mean that you became so well versed on the total ma money makeover plan that you were able to teach others how to get their finances in order so our church approached us because christina and i've been working with a financial education program other than dave ramsey and they looked at us as experts in the financial area as far as debt consolidation and, and debt reduction, those kind of things. We did Dave Ramsey when we were newly married and we felt like there was something missing in the program. Again, Dave Ramsey has helped a lot of people. It just wasn't great for us. We had a program called the financial fitness program that we had much better results in. And that's why they had asked us to go ahead and help facilitate a finance class. And they used the curriculum of Dave Ramsey. Kobe Bryant died earlier this week. Where were you when you heard that he died? I was at home with my kids and I was thinking to myself, holy cow, he's my age. Mm. And then when later it came out that, one of his daughters was with him in the plane ride. I was like, gosh, that must be terrible for him, his family, his wife, his other children who've lost a sibling and a father. It just it hits the core. I mean, forget about basketball for a minute. That's just, I feel bad for his family. It is incredible. You're right. He's, he is within a year or two of our age, and he's got four kids just like you. Yeah, I just can't imagine. There were so many stories told about him and by him through the years that inspired me that when he died, I, I, I repeated over and over like, oh, my God, oh, my God, oh, my God, because he was just one of those people that had this persona that was that was bionic. I don't know if that's the right word, but he was a machine. And his intellect was so sharp. I've listened to several interviews with him, and he's so poised and collected and intelligent to, to think that, I think it was Obama who said that he was going to do more in his next 41 years than he did in the first 41 years. And when you listen to him talk, he's right. It's, it's incredible. I mean, the guy had already won an Oscar for in the arts. I don't know exactly what he was doing in the arts, but. Yeah, I mean, just an incredible guy. And to think that it could all be taken from you. I, I heard a story about how prior to retiring, he was planning out his days, months in advance as to what he was going to do. And uh, he was on the Lewis Howes podcast. And Lewis told the story of when he went to his office to interview him. He got there an hour early because they were scheduled to meet like at around 730. And he saw Kobe sitting in the corner in a dark room and he didn't have his computer on. He wasn't looking at his phone. And he turned to the, to the lady that was guiding him and said, is that Kobe over there? And she was like, yeah, he got, he gets here early. Like, How long has he been here? Oh, he's been here about an hour. Is he here before everybody every day? Yes. The, and he leaves, he leaves every day after everybody too. So he's just got this drive to succeed and, and 
on this particular podcast, Lewis House podcast, he was talking about how a lot of NBA stars go broke after they retire. And so he wanted to ensure that that sort of thing didn't happen. But you think about, I don't know how financially literate he is. I'm sure he hasn't been through the Dave Ramsey program, but you're talking about a guy who's worth like $600 million. If you've lived on 1% of that interest, you're talking about living on half a million dollars a month. So it had nothing to do with, I've got enough money. It came from a desire to be great in whatever it is that he wanted to do. And I'm a big fan of just studying greatness. I had posted on Twitter a few days prior to him dying a video of, of Drew Brees who was out on the football field by himself after everybody had left the facility. And he was just going through like phantom reads. He's out there by himself and he's pump faking as if there's a, a defense out on the field. And he's just doing a visualization in preparation for the game coming up. And that's what greatness looks like. It's doing things in solitude. And one of the questions he was asked that was awesome on this particular podcast that I'm talking about, he was asked what his definition of greatness was. And he said, my definition of greatness is to inspire the person next to you to inspire someone else who in turn inspires someone else. When you do that, it doesn't live and die with you. It continues. And I think that that's greatness. And I'm just like, oh, this dude, for him to be taken from us is just too soon. And I've been, dude, I have worked harder this week on what it is that I want to accomplish, at least since I've been quote unquote retired. Yeah, I'm not supposed to be grinding like this, but dude, I've been up to like three, four in the morning, up three or four hours later, and I've just got Kobe in my mind. How is it that a guy that I have never met can have that sort of impact on me? I have no idea. I can't explain it, but it's incredible. That leads me to a question, Brad, because I, I mean, it sounds like obviously you've got an awesome following Kobe, and, and but it, those things I don't think are taught to people. I think you, it's sometimes an innate thing that's within people. And it sounds like, well, I shouldn't say it sounds like, I feel like I saw that early because I remember back in college, when we were in college, there would be like, oh, I don't want to go do that because I want to do, I wanted to save money or I want to go ahead and focus on this or I'm going to focus on that. And it, and it wasn't everything, anything specific, but it was something that you could feel. It's almost like an aura. So I want to talk a little bit about, your success. I mean, I know a little bit about what you've done and your, it's, is it fire? Yeah. Financial independence. Retire early? early. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It's catchy. I like it. I did a, mm-hmm. I mean, I did a little looking on it, but tell me a little bit how you got there and I, and, and what that looked like and, and how did you think of that? Because it comes from, I, I don't, I'm sure that you didn't just say, all right, well, uh, I need to go do X, Y, and Z or somebody told you to go do X, Y, and Z, and maybe they did. Maybe you had a mentor, maybe you had a coach. Uh, tell me a little bit about that, please. I think it starts with sports, man. I've been playing sports for from a very young age, and we had a championship-caliber team with an, a great, inspiring coach who, who taught us the value of preparation and discipline and surrounding yourself with good people and good teammates and being a good teammate. And being humble in the process and not caring how many points you scored. So I started to learn all that as a a somewhat precocious 12-year-old. And then I had some things happen that were family-related that forced me to grow up very fast and figure out how to make money for myself very fast. And so later in life, in 2003, well, let me back up. 
after high school, I didn't have any scholarship offers. And so I walked on at a junior college and I had a good year. And then that summer, somebody from Nickel State was at the same tryout as me. And I ran a really good 60 and I hit a couple of balls out of the yard. And he said, man, you ought to come play for us. And so he talked to G. Kassar, who was our recruiting coordinator slash pitching coach at the time. And they recruited me to come and play at, at Nichols. I didn't have a full scholarship at Nichols, but when I would have a good season, I would go and negotiate for more. And so that taught me how to negotiate because uh, yeah, that was my first experience doing it. Uh, but I needed it, right? Because I didn't, unlike many, have the help of my parents because of the struggles that I went through when I was a kid. So fast forward, I get out of college. I kind of thought I would get a shot to play pro ball. And when that didn't happen, I realized that I would have had a better shot to play pro ball if I had, if I had learned a lot of things about hitting sooner. And so I said this on the podcast with Carson Lee, but I was too soon old, too late, smart. And so when I got to the real world, I didn't want that same thing to happen. And so I preempted the lack of, of knowledge, but the, the, I preempted failure, or I should say accelerated the fear of failure by trying to learn everything that I possibly could so that I could have the success and achieve the goals that I wanted to achieve that I didn't in sports, in baseball. Because what I realized is that even though I didn't realize my aspirations of playing professional baseball, what I gained in the process of trying to achieve that goal was way more valuable than achieving the goal. And that was skipping nights out at the bars, getting up early, going to the batting cage, going to the gym, putting a weight in the door at the gym so that I can sneak in there when nobody's in there, reading books on the bus, learning as much as I could. So all of these things became part of me and I became this, this disciplined person that I was able to carry forward. You know, I was, I was at the Nichols State Alumni Banquet in, I think this was 2014, and little known, at least around the country, little known Ed Ogeron was the guest speaker. Well, Coach O talked about how the work ethic that you learn between the ages of 18 and 22 is going to carry you forward the rest of your life. And man, I, be I believe that more as much as I believe in anything. I think that those first few years when you're away from your parents, when you're away from your friends, you've got to figure it all out on your own. Those are the most integral years of your life in terms of building the rest of your life. So all of the habits and the disciplines I took and applied to the business world. And I took it upon myself to, I would study different subjects. So it was almost as if I was still in school because I didn't make a lot of money when I first got out of school. So I could continue to live like a college kid. I still ate the same ramen noodles and little cans of chicken that I ate when I was in college. Uh, so I didn't spend a lot of money and I was able to build up my income as I built my skill set while keeping my expenses low. And what I was learning from books like The Richest Man in Babylon and Rich Dad, Poor Dad was that if you want to be financially independent someday, you're going to need to extend the gap between your income and expenses and, and invest that gap. So that's what I did as soon as I could. But the only reason that I had the wherewithal to do that, I think, is because of the hard lesson 
that I learned of not achieving my goal when I was in college. So what you become in the pursuit of your goal is way more important than achieving the goal. So that's where it started. Does somebody have to do that between 18 and 22 or can, what if they don't have that epiphany? It sounds like, I I mean, it sounds like you were (laughs) ahead of the game, if you will. You were ahead of the curve. I, I mean, at 18 to 22 years old, I mean, I was probably on the other side of things. I was still going to the bars probably too much and, you know, kind of flying by the seat of my pants. I, instead of eating canned chicken, I would eat, you know, probably stuff that I shouldn't be eating. And, and I, I think I've, I've wish I had that insight or that foresight, I guess, and that vision when I was 18 to 22. And I, I feel like I'm getting closer to that, but it's always a journey. So if it doesn't happen at 18 to 22, are you, I think that it can happen later. Help, help me on that. Do you think that can happen for somebody later? Absolutely. I've had this conversation with several of my buddies about how a lot of this was forced upon me at a young age. And so, sure, I could have gone a bad route, but instead of going down the alcohol, drugs, drop out of school type of route, I attached myself to good people from good families. I only dated women, girls from good families. And I looked for men that I could respect to be an influence in my life. So the girl that I dated for a long time in high school and college, I respected the shit out of her dad and I I wanted to be like him. And so that sort of thing influences you. If you spend enough time around those people, there's no way that I was going to not gain that guy's respect, right? It was imperative for me. So you learn to do things like delay gratification. If you're trying to impress people and and you're trying to uh, be disciplined and demonstrate that you have the type of work ethic that corners the type of respect that might be worthy of dating his daughter, right? The NCAA, as you know, requires that you spend so much time playing baseball and traveling and, and you're forced to balance that with school. That when you when I got out of school, it just seemed to me like I, I'm only working one job. Like I've got all this extra time. Why don't I work two jobs? And so I learned what financial independence was in 2003 when I was attending a seminar with with one of the older fellows at my office. I learned that financial independence was the ability to live from the income of your own personal resources. And I thought, wow, is that is that a powerful concept? Because at that point. You work if you want to, and you work on what it is that you want to. So I remember when I, when I took a year off in 2014, or was it 2015, and I came back to the workplace, or I, I planned on coming back to the workplace, I remember sharing that with a guy who was talking about hiring me. I said, you know, I always had this goal, I, and I, I broke down kind of like, I was, can I just be candid with you, you know, and I just told him, because interviews are mostly just, hey, let me wear this mask and and I'm not like that. Like, I'm, I'm going to be straight with you. And I told him, I always had this goal to be financially independent. So I, I invested in a bunch of real estate. And, you know, once your passive income exceeds your expenses, you work if you want to. But you don't want to say that in an interview because they prefer people who are under piles of debt that need to work in order to provide for a family or make their Porsche payment or whatever but I'm not like that. I have more of like a Mamba mentality where like, I'm going to hold myself to a standard that you're not going to be able to match. So like, if you're going to give me shit about something that you don't agree with that I did, or you think that I'm slacking in this area, we're going to talk about it. 
Like I'm not just going, okay, yes, sir. Yeah. So I can be somewhat disagreeable, but that's what led to me making a lot of money, right? Is people who are disagreeable tend to negotiate harder. At an early age, it started where I had to learn to manage money and delay gratification. Otherwise, I, I really would have been screwed in life. So I made that uh, I made that decision at an early age, and then just carried it into adulthood. And then, with regard to motivation and whether you can get it later, the motivation is a mystery. And some for some people, it is innate, and others, it's not. But you've seen people who have demonstrated that innate characteristic. Chuck Hickman, who you mentioned before this call, certainly had that. He was a, a high draft pick by the Cubs when we played, certainly the best, easily the best player on our team when we graduated. He was going to hold himself to a standard that nobody else was going to be able to hold him to. And he was in the gym far after everybody had left. He wanted to be great. And that's that Mamba mentality. They just want to be great. And so I think when you when you see people like that, you decide if you want to be like them or not. A lot of people can't force themselves to do things that others aren't willing to do. So you kind of decide which side of the ledger you want to be on. Do you want to be great or you want to be mediocre? And if you want to be great, you're going to have to do the kind of shit that this guy Kobe is doing. So buckle up, man. That dude's going to make some serious sacrifices. I heard a story about Kobe one time. He said, they used to try to get me on the Lakers to go to the bars with them. So we'd go to, we'd travel to New York City to play the Knicks and the guys would say, Kobe, you're going to come out with us? And he'd say, yeah, yeah, I'll come out with you. And I would go out and I would have a few drinks with them. But you know what? At 5 a.m., I was banging on their door and I said, I hung out with you. Now you come hang out with me. And then they would go and they would uh, practice at the gym. They would have a game that next night. And he said, what I wanted to, to show them was that on back-to-backs, we're here for a reason. And if you're going to play in the NBA, you play what's called back-to-backs, you know, back-to-back nights. And uh, I need to make sure that you're all in. So, yeah, I'll come hang out with you. You keep asking. That's fine. But you're going to come hang out with me when I want you to come hang out with me. So it's reciprocal that way. And I just – I can't get enough of the Kobe stuff. That's awesome. I, I saw a quick little blurb. I think Allen Iverson said something about Kobe. He said – Kobe said to Allen Iverson, hey, what are you doing after the game? Allen Iverson said, hey, I'm going to the clubs. What are you going to do? And Kobe said, I'm going to the gym. The gym. The journey is where you get to feel the most, I guess, excited. So you're talking about things that happened to you that made you kind of grow up quicker. But it sounds like, and you use the term like, I would have been doomed. And, And a lot of people would look at someone in your situation who had you know, a successful real estate career, a successful software sales career and say, what do you mean you're doomed to that? Is that, how is that doomed? That would be success for a lot of people. And that's not the way you looked at it. You looked at it as, oh my gosh, this is a trap. How do I get out of this trap? So how do you look and say, I don't want this and, and, and grow above that is what you did. Yeah, it's a great question. When I quote unquote retired and considered going back to the workplace, I valued my time at a rate at which it would have been hard to compensate me. So I valued my time and my skill set because there's not anybody that's going to outwork me at the office on my team, but they don't know that. And so they're taking a risk on a guy like me. And I understood that. It's high conscientiousness, really. It's, it's 
always having an attention to detail and wanting to do good work that continues to drive me. And it has everything to do with what you just talked about. The life is the journey. Like the journey is where you live. So if you accomplish a goal, if you become financially independent and retire early, that's a pretty ambitious goal and you can feel good about accomplishing it. But you better get started on achieving the next set of goals. Otherwise, you're, you're headed for a downward spiral. And you hear it all the time about people, quote, people retiring, not quote unquote retiring, but retiring and then dying quickly thereafter because they don't have anything to do. They don't have anything to look forward to. And I love to build things and create things. And I didn't even know that about myself. So much like Kobe, when he retired and had to start from scratch, I mean, you're starting from zero. It's hard. It's scary. But I've been there before. I'm comfortable being a nobody. And that's been one of the keys to my success is like, I don't need recognition. I don't need validation from people. If I just focus in this next phase of my life on providing value to other people, why do I care what people think of me? Yeah, man, it's, it's maintaining a beginner's mindset. I think that's the key is, is maintaining a willingness to learn and develop. And there's always more ways to grow. And I think the death of Kobe does something to us where it reflects, it forces reflection on like, am I working hard enough? Am I fulfilling my potential? If I were taken away in, in this life tomorrow, like, would I be, did, did, I, did I do everything I could? Did I hug my wife enough? Did I tell her I loved her yesterday? You know, so it just forces you to, that's exactly what you, that's greatness. Like that's, Kobe was great, not only because of what he did on the basketball court, but he inspired people to inspire people who, to where I'm inspired and I'm talking to you and somebody's listening to this and they might be inspired to, to accomplish something great too. So it's, it's, it's awesome. I couldn't have said it better. I was just going to say, that's awesome. I, I, it sounds like to me, and I don't want to put words in your mouth, but it sounds like you are an avid learner. And, and from what you said, and I thought personally, when I graduated school, I was like, sweet, no more learning. Awesome. Right. And I found recently that that's nowhere near. Like I, I have so much to learn. I, I have four kids and I'm still learning how to be a dad. I have, you know, I've been in the mortgage business since 2005 and I'm still learning the mortgage business. But I mean, more than that, like the power of the mind and, and, you know, all that connection and mind body connection, all that stuff I'm, I'm learning now. And it's funny. And I, I, we talked a little bit about this, but the, the, the book, the secret, I've watched the movie over and over again. There's a book called the Jackrabbit factor. And in that it's by Florence Littower, who's a, she is a facilitator for Bob Proctor's program, who was in the movie, the secret. And in that, it talks about visualizing and in the secret, it talks about visualizing, put somebody's image, an image of a person, you know, from the past. And next thing you're going to get a phone call from them. I met with Clint Joffrey a few months ago, and he talked a little bit about you. And next thing you know, you're commenting on a post that I made about mortgage and real estate. And next thing you know, we're doing a podcast and the jackrabbit factor and the secret talks about law of attraction. And when you put something like that in your thoughts, 
it becomes a reality. So for you, it sounded like you did it with business. My thought is I want to be financially independent. I don't want to do this, but it works for people. It works for money. It works for relationships. It works for, it looked where it works. For, it could work for a cup of coffee. And I've just been amazed at learning these things. And I'm like, wow, this blows my mind. So it sounds like you've got a little bit of that in you. Absolutely. I truly think that you create your own life. Everything that I am experiencing now is something that was a deeply held conviction at one time, wanting freedom, not wanting a boss, wanting to create something that inspires people. I think that's, that's something that has always been within. And I have been attracted to books to help with mindset that I started reading as soon as I got out of school, books like Think and Grow Rich by Napoleon Hill. But to, to your point about you have four kids and you have all these things that you want to learn. One thing that I've considered that many people don't talk about is when you think about how much time you've spent with your kids versus the time that I haven't spent being a dad. We're talking about loads of time. So I would probably be willing to bet that I have read 150 more books than you have. But there's no higher value or greater contribution that you could make to the world than being a great dad. I hopefully will get that opportunity to be a great dad. I've just chosen a different course. So some of the benefits that I'm reaping now are from those early choices that I made. But I do hope that with those choices will enable me to be super dad later because of the time freedom that I've created for myself and for my wife. People don't talk about that often, but people like Tim Ferriss, he's 41 or 42, something like that. He's never been married. He doesn't have any kids. He's had so much time to think and read and journal and create things and He's getting the compounding benefits of that. That's the route that I've decided to go. And uh, it's just, I think people don't think about that, that I've had so much more time to work on, on the stuff that have enabled me to accomplish what I have. So to just follow up on that. So it sounds like you feel like you're in a great position for when you do become a father to give as much time to your children as possible because you've earned that time freedom by having a residual income that exceeds your monthly expenses. Is that what I'm hearing? Yes. I guess I'm explaining that. Yes. It's cool that I've achieved all this, all these things financially, which is great, but I haven't gotten to experience any of the benefits that you have in terms of fatherhood. And I think that my accomplishment is, is no better or worse than yours. Hopefully I do get an opportunity to not only be a great dad, but be like super dad because of the time that I'm going to be able to spend with them versus what my dad was able to spend with me. But that also comes with some downside as, as far as time freedom. Another thing that I heard, I heard Kobe say is that he used to take Gianna to the gym with him to work out at 4 a.m. And he said the reason that he was doing that is so that he could demonstrate 
his work ethic to her because he wants to instill the work ethic and motivation in his kids that he had. If your kids don't see you working, they're probably not going to develop a strong work ethic. So uh, that also inspires me and makes me want to continue to do big things. And so I'm always searching for uh, ways to grow and learn more and build something so that I can not only spend time with them, but show them, hey, dad works hard. That's awesome. Yeah, I, I was actually just talking to my gym partner about that the other day. He was saying, you know, my daughter never sees me sleep because I am up at the gym at 430 and I am home by the time she's usually getting up. And then when she goes to sleep, I'm usually up still working either on my business or around the house. And she knows that her dad is working his tail off. And so the same thing, I'm, I'm at the gym at 4.30 in the morning. On four out of five days during the week, I go to the my home office, if you will. And then they see me working. They're always asking, well, why do you have to go, dad? Hmm. And But they still know that, well, that's the reason why we can take trips. Or that's the reason, you know, go to Louisiana for 10 days to see Chuck and Candace Hickman. So they understand that that's the case. And mom's got a lot more time freedom to where she can homeschool three days a week and only has to work one day a week when she wants. So we've designed our life. And we talked about having four kids before we even got married. Mm. And lo and behold, look, we had because the vision we had. And then there we are. That's the secret. Mm -hmm. You mentioned to me that you are a Christ follower. Can you talk about your faith and what it means to you? I love talking about this and it's fairly new. I grew up in a house where I was baptized Catholic and I think I went to church one time when I was a kid, not like once a year, one time. And I didn't really follow Christ at all. When I was married, we got married in the Lutheran church because that was the church that my wife said she always was going to get married in and that vision kicks in again. So we went to church at the church that she chose. It's a non-denominational Christian church that we still go to. And I would always be the one that would volunteer to take care of the kids if they had to take a nap or be fed. And then I said, you know, that's your thing. Go ahead. And finally, one day she said to me, and I always like to frame this this way or preface it this way. If you ever saw the movie, The Breakup with Vince Vaughn and Jennifer Aniston, mm-hmm. yeah. talks about doing the dishes. And he comes over and he's like, I'll do the damn dishes. And she goes, I don't want you to do the damn dishes. I want you to want to do the dishes. And so, if you will, it was a, a come to Jesus talk that Christina had with me. I want you to want to go to church. I said, well, if the woman I love wants me to do this and if our kids are going to a christian preschool and i'm learning from the kid bible that i'm reading to them at night it seems a little hypocritical and it goes back to the example of the work ethic if i say that you guys should do this but then don't practice it then i was just being a hypocrite so i decided that i would be more involved And since then, I've served at the church in a number of different capacities. Now I'm 
taken the role of the spiritual leader of my house. And I think that as a man, that's the way Christ wanted it to be. So I'm trying to live that and show my kids we don't eat before we pray. And my kids will stop each other sometimes and say, wait, we got to pray first. It'll be thank you, Father, and it'll end with amen. And so at night, we'll pray. I'll ask them to pray. And then I'll go ahead and say a prayer over them. And then just recently, I've started praying with my wife daily on our knees together. Because I think being closer to Christ helps us be closer together as a married couple. So I am blessed beyond I can imagine. And the blessings continue to come. And I'm so grateful for my wife for giving me that little nudge when Christ was calling me the whole time. Do you homeschool your kids or you send them to Catholic school? So my kids are homeschooled three days a week. And two days of the week, they go to a Christian school called Caritas. This was the first year that this school came into existence. And honestly, we feel like we were led there <laughs> in a number of different reasons. We were looking to buy a house in the neighborhood we live in right now. We bid on houses. We were beat out on those houses. And we started looking at the school that my kids were at and had some questions there. And we went looking for another school. We liked the idea of a Christian school. And then we found a hybrid model. My wife wasn't super excited. Christina wasn't super excited about homeschooling full-time. But the hybrid model was attractive to her where she could do it some days, but not all days. And the school that we initially went to said, I'm sorry, we don't have any openings for your third grader. And they said, but there is a school that's opening this next year that you may be interested in. And that led us to that school, which is we're the first class at this school. And there's a total of, I think, 12 children there. Mm. So give me a day in the life of Mike Kelso. What time do you get up? Do you eat breakfast? Are you a coffee drinker? I get up at around 4 the gym around 4.30, usually start the work at around 4.45, done around 6.30, come home, get everybody up if they're not up yet, make breakfast for everyone, help everybody get dressed. My son goes to preschool. He's four years old. And depending on the day, my two older girls that are nine and seven will either go to school or be homeschooled. Drink coffee probably more than I should, but I don't put anything in it anymore. Black mm -hmm. coffee, keep it simple. None of that other stuff. <laughs> I eat breakfast most days that I work out. On days that I don't, for some reason, I tend to forget. <laughs> and I work from home now, but I can't work from home when we have homeschool and a 16-month-old. So my mom lives about two miles from my house, so I go work at her house. Uh. So it's very convenient and nice. I'm usually home between 5 and 5.15. I did that because my wife, Christina, is a quality time person. If you've ever read the book, Love Languages, wow. her love language is quality time. And yours is? Mine is 
I always, I always forget it. But honestly, I think it's words. Interesting. And then I show it with acts. So if I'm upset or I feel like I've upset Christina, I usually start cleaning up things, taking the garbage out, <laughs> doing laundry. It's kind of odd, but I, I prefer words, words of affirmation. So with her being quality time, typically I would get a text daily asking me what time I would be home. So I decided for simplicity, I just told Christine I will be home between 5 and 5.15 every day. If, I, if I'm not, I will make sure to let you know. So I try to be home between 5 and 5.15 unless I'm picking up kids at gymnastics or dance or baseball or anywhere else. All right, I'm going to ask you some fast, fun questions. Are you ready for those? Please. What is your favorite personal development book? Think and Grow Rich. Think and Grow Rich. Good answer. What stands out as something you wish that you'd known sooner, like maybe 10 or 15 years ago? I think visualization is the biggest thing because nothing was ever created unless it was created in somebody's mind first and putting that in your mind, writing it down, visualizing it, repeating it, it's going to happen. If I'd have known that 20 years ago, I may be finishing my baseball career. <laughs> so do you take time to visualize? What does that look like? I do. I try to meditate, visualize. I write things down. I have a journal that I keep that my daughter gave to me, my nine-year-old daughter gave to me and has scriptures on it. And in that, I try to write down things that I'm grateful for and also things that I'm grateful for that haven't happened yet that are coming in the future. Oh, good. That leads to my next question. And what do you hope to tell your grandkids about your 40s? I hope to tell my grandkids that I gained my financial independence in my 40s. I was able to go ahead and spend my time more what I wanted to do. What would you do if somebody dropped a million dollars in your lap tomorrow? I would find an opportunity that would make more money mm. and I would do plenty of research to make sure that was not just burnt. And I would want to make sure that it was something that could be a sustainable thing and, and be a life changer because a million dollars these days isn't quite as much as most people think it is. Cool. Where can people find you online, Mike? I'm at Geneva.com backslash Mike dash Kelso on Facebook, Kelso home loans. I, I know you do Twitter a lot and it's your favorite social media that you mentioned on uh, one of your earlier podcasts. I'm yeah, not I'm a big like Twitter it. guy. Mm. I have one, but I don't use it. Mm. Maybe I can, maybe I'll learn from you and, and be more Twitterist. <laughs> more Twitterist. <laughs> it took me a while to do it, but I'm finally, engaging more i think it's like any social media platform you kind of sit on the sidelines and see how it works for a little while and then you start being more active but i've found twitter the best place to connect with people that you don't know so it's basically sharing thoughts and if you like each other's thoughts then you follow each other and you can build a relationship and i've, I've met a few people from twitter and it's a it's a wonderful experience that's cool it really is Cool. Well, Mike, I enjoyed this very much, dude. <laughs> and I hope that we'll do it again sometime. I would love to, Bradley D. Thank you so much for having me on. I really do appreciate it. I agree we should do this again if, if you'll have me. And I am looking forward to hearing more from you. 
Absolutely. Friends, thank you for joining us today. I know how valuable your time is and that you chose to spend your valuable time with us. I can't tell you how much it means to me, so thank you. If you wish to follow my adventures on Instagram and Twitter, I am at man underscore overseas. Thank you, folks. Thank you.